chapter 19. Um, <laughs> did, I, did I not say Matthew? <laughs> oh, thank you. I know, I just love it. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. He's just showing off in front of his family. <laughs> Six months and I know it's Matthew. <laughs> 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 Be here a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told somebody I'm not retiring until I finish the book of Matthew. <laughs> And then Bob looked at me and says, I'll say it's going to be a verse-by-verse verse exposition. <laughs> um, oh, so, yes, the book of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 27 through 30. Uh, and chapter 19... <laughs> oh, boy. Someone just want to read this for me? I'm just going to go home. <laughs> um... Chapter 19 began with a confrontation by the religious leader. They asked Jesus these two trick questions. Uh, first of all, about marriage and then about divorce. Then Jesus con speaks concerning uh, riches and now turns to the subject of rewards. And in the verses that uh, were studied or preached on last week by Bob and the verses that I have today, there's three questions that are being asked. Um, the first question was asked by the rich young ruler that said, what good things must I do to have eternal life? The second question was um, after Jesus told the rich young ruler what he had to do, and he said, well, I've done everything that you've said that I need to do. And he says, well, then go sell everything. And then the rich young ruler sort of sadly walked away. And then the second question came by the disciples when they say, well, then who can be saved? And then he went into the parable of the camel through the eye of a needle. And now he comes to the third question, um, which is our verses today. So go ahead and just read Matthew 19, 27 through 30. Uh, you can have somebody read it out loud at your table, or you can just read it on your own. One of the underlying messages of the rich young ruler is simply this. Either Christ separates us from the world or the world separates us from Christ. You know, either Christ will separate us from the world or the world separates us from Christ. There are just really two, two kinds of people. Uh, those who love Christ so much that the world does not have hold on their hearts or those who love the world so much that Christ can't get a hold of their hearts. 
Um, and so they lose hold of him. And that's sort of one of the lessons for the rich young ruler. And Peter and the other disciples sort of are watching all of this get played out with Jesus and the rich young ruler. And after all of that, and he answers their question, and they grasp that lesson, the disciples come up and ask a question. Um, and they go, you know, we gave up everything we had. Now, obviously, we didn't have what the rich young ruler had, but we gave everything up that we had just to follow you. Is there a reward for us? Um, and here Peter is speaking on behalf of all the disciples. Uh, and again, it's important to recognize that the disciples did leave everything that was important to them at that point to follow Jesus. So it didn't matter the amount. It meant just as much to them as it would have meant to anybody else. And they asked, is there a reward for us? Or are you calling us to give up everything for nothing in return? Are we just doing it? And so they begin to wonder as they see what's taking place. And it's interesting, the Bible doesn't condemn us for possessions, um, but rather our use of our possessions. Because God has given us everything and he said, we are stewards of everything that God has given us. So if we're a steward, who owns it? God owns it. And he's just said, okay, I'm going to make you a steward of all of this. Now, what right does an owner have? Everything. And so if God owns us, doesn't he also have the right to tell us how we should live? And we are just stewards of that which God has given us. And when we are stewards of anything, we hold things lightly. You know, the, the possessions we have, the issues that we confront, the hurts we've been, that have come against us, the anger, the betrayals, all of those things we begin to hurt, hold a little bit lightly so we can hold on to Christ a little more tightly. And, but when we feel like it's ours... And something does, someone does something to us, we have, it's hard for us to let it go. Because we don't see ourselves as stewards, we see ourselves as owners. And so that just is an indication of how you view yourself when something goes against what you want. Are you a steward or are you an owner? And a lot of times we get ourselves in trouble because we think we are the owners instead of the stewards. So Peter and the, and the disciples ask a question, and we see Jesus' three-part response to the first question. First, Peter's question is in verse 27. Then Peter answered him and said, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And the expression left all carries with it a sense once and for all. Not only did I leave all today, but I've left all permanently. I have let it go. I have surrendered. I have given it up. And now I am yours. It's a making a determined decision um, to follow and not go back. They had done that. So now what's their reward? And it's interesting 
because commentators will argue about, you know, their motive. And I think in almost every question that the disciples ask, or that the disciples have Peter ask, has a positive side as well as maybe a little bit of selfish side. You know, there's a side that says, I want to honor God, I want to glorify God, give me the truth. But then at the same side that says, is there anything in it for us? But Jesus does not rebuke Peter's question. He doesn't say, how dare you ask that kind of a question, Peter? He doesn't chastise him or anything. He doesn't get upset. Um, but that same question, when offered with the wrong motive, uh, has already said that not a good thing. Because when people ask or do something in order to get a reward or in order to get something, we get into a pretty bad theology. And we get into, you know, the name it, claim it theology, the, you know, the prosperity gospel theology. And in Matthew 6, 118 and Luke 14, 7 through 14, it says, when you're looking for a reward, you risk forfeiting your reward. So it's all the motive of why you're doing what you're doing. And so the disciples really weren't doing it to get a reward. They were just following Jesus. They had forsaken all and followed him. But then when he started hearing these questions, it sort of raised a question for them. So I don't think it's wrong to ask the question of Jesus. Jesus himself said, count the cost. Count the cost of what it means to follow him. Is there some compensation for following Jesus? Is there some compensation the disciples are wondering? And he, again, notice that Peter uses the word we, not me. He goes, is there, is there something for us? Is there something for, you know, we have a question. Um, in other words, he's saying, Lord, if we have lost the world for you, for your sake, I mean, if we have risked everything, being kicked out of synagogues, if we have risked losing our families, our businesses, our connection, if we have risked our trade, our vocation, we have risked all of this, our material ability to make money, to provide for, us, for our families. We've done this for your sake. Can we expect something in return? Now that's not an uncommon question. And how many times have we even heard people say, the reason I don't want to follow Christ is because, and usually that because has something to do with what God may make them lose. Very rarely does somebody say, yeah, I, I don't want to follow Christ because I'm really concerned about all the blessings I might receive. You know, they're, they're concerned about what they might lose. And so they have a, a converted or a wrong thinking about what it means to follow Christ and the blessings that follow. Um, so it is a vital question. So no matter what we think of Peter's motivation, I think it's perfectly okay that Peter would ask the question. I think it's perfectly okay that people would ask that question. Um, and so there can be nothing in this life, with the whole emphasis is what Jesus puts down at this, there should be nothing in our life that has priority over him. It's okay to ask the question, but the answer is that nothing 
Nothing should have priority over Jesus. That's the nature of his call on our life. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to leave everything and follow him. Now that does not mean we leave our marriages. It doesn't mean that we leave our jobs. It does not mean that we leave everything and take a vow of poverty. But it means that none of those things take the place of Christ. That nothing in this life has a right to replace the supremacy of Christ in our lives. In that sense, we leave all and follow him. Now, I've said that to people, and they say, no, wait, my spouse has to be number one. And I go, that sounds wonderful, and it sounds romantic, and it sounds, sounds hallmarkish, but, it, but folks, who was it that rescued marriages? During the New Testament, who was the one who said, husbands and wives, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. They elevated, Jesus elevated marriage to a degree that it had never been before. A female was no longer property. When we are following Christ's example of a marriage, marriages have a thousand percent better chance of not only succeeding, but of being beneficial. And so why do we put Christ first? Because he has the standards for how every aspect of life should be lived. And so it just makes sense um, that we will put so many other things ahead of Christ. So it just means that nothing has a right to replace the supremacy of Christ in our lives. In that sense, we leave all and follow him. But corresponding to that call, to self-abandonment and discipleship, there are many biblical assurances of finding favor with God even in what we lose in this world. So what, is, what are the rewards? What, else, what are the benefits? Because again, we think our reward system is here. And we usually think that our reward system is material. And we take a look because that's the easiest thing to observe. Wow, look how successful they are. I find it interesting when um, Stephen Covey wrote the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he didn't use the word successful. Successful wasn't important. He wanted people to be effective. And that's basically what Jesus says. I want you to be effective in your ministry. I want you to be effective in your witness. I want to be effective in your life. Um, but yet we don't think effective. We don't think effective in our witness. We think of successful in our career. We think successful from that perspective. Um, but he's talking about all of this. How do we find what it means to truly live a God-honoring life? And so he tells us to change our reward system. And it says in Matthew 7, 11, that God is a gracious God who delights to give good things to those who humbly seek and obey him. He delights in giving us good things. So many times, instead of sitting there going, I didn't get what I wanted, recognize that God delights in giving good things. Now, the first and primary treasure is eternal life. 
But then he mentions all these others in James 1 to 12. There's a crown of life that is mentioned that is given to those who persevere under trial. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, there's an imperishable wreath mentioned that is given to those who learn self-control. To those who are serious about the Great Commission, they have a crown of exaltation that is seen in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For those who look forward to and love the Lord's coming and live their lives in light of that truth, there is a crown of righteousness that we see in 2 Timothy 4.8. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are all men to be pitied. So there's all kinds of rewards, but the rewards aren't what we normally perceive. The rewards are much deeper. They're relational, they're spiritual, they're emotional. They're focusing on what it means to have an effective life, a beneficial life a healthy life for Christ. So Paul isn't saying Christ doesn't just call you to give up everything for him and then you end up with nothing. He's the, that's the opposite. He's saying, no, whatever you give up for Christ, he does far more as far as blessing us. And everything that he gives up, he calls on us to give up he is prepared to compensate us in blessing. So whatever he calls us to give up, he's compensating us with other blessing. See, Christ is saying to them, there is nothing that you give up in this life that is worth losing the reward that I have for you. You're holding on to these other things, and by holding on to those things, you are forfeiting a great reward. So when I'm holding on to whatever it may be, my possessions, my opinions, my falsehoods, my anger, my resentments, my bitterness, whatever it is, I'm forfeiting a benefit. So next time you're wondering why God isn't blessing you, look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm pretty angry. And I'm pretty upset. And I haven't been able to forgive. And I'm holding on to resentments and I'm holding on to my possessions so tightly. So the reason I'll take ownership of this one, God. And stop blaming God for things that we're doing. You know, we just need to be honest about what we hold on to and what we're willing to surrender. Anyway, so then Jesus gives um, his answer to the question in verses 28 and 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in this new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. How many have a New King James Version of their Bible here? Okay. And where it says, um, where is it? In the New World. Verse 28. Truly said to them, truly I say to you, what, what does your version say? Right. 
See, some versions will say regeneration. Some versions will say re renewal. Others will say the new world. And if I had about three or four hours, I would, we could do a study on heaven and the new world and the new earth and the regeneration and all of that. And I don't think anybody wants to stay here till three o'clock in the afternoon. Although the Cubs don't start till 3.05. Um, but it would be, you know, some, sometime we, on, a, on a Sunday night or on a Wednesday night, we could just do a study on, on that, on heaven. Um, but the first part, per first part of Jesus' answer is specific to the disciples. The second part applies to all who meet those conditions. So he says, truly I say to you, and a phrase that's calling attention. He's saying, okay, pay attention now. Truly, I say to you, um, this is going to be important. For those of you that have followed me, and again, he's not giving a blanket statement to everybody. In other words, Jesus did not just start out with the word receive in the new world. Instead, Jesus qualifies that and says, for those of you who have followed me in this new world, this is what the reward you will have. And he says to the disciples, let me assure you that there will be a future glory that you're going to have in my kingdom. When you see me coming in my glorious throne, you too will reign, judging over the 12 tribes of the restored Israel. And the judging there is not a judging like judging, it's a judging that I will oversee. Um, you'll have a place of honor in my kingdom. So Jesus is telling them that when you, because you have followed me, your reward is that you too will have a place of honor in heaven. And he's not saying heaven. He's saying in the new world. <laughs> but that's what we'll get to. Um, he is asking them to look at their lives now and judge their losses in light of the blessings that he is giving to them or he's going to give them. And I think that's sometimes what we need to be able to do spend more time looking at the blessings that Jesus has given us and less time on the things that we perceive as losses. Because no man, no person, no woman, no child is ever a loser when you give up something for Christ. You will never be a loser if you give up something for Christ. No matter what you lose and what you think you perceive in losing, to serve him, we ultimately are always gaining more blessings. That's why Paul could say, I count all things, I count all things to be rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count all those things rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Um... See, under, Paul understood that nothing he could lose could measure up to what God was going to give him forever. So he was willing to make that sacrifice. Um, that's why the Puritans, and what, uh, the, the quote became so popular with Eliot, Jim Eliot, said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And we've heard, I, I don't know how many of you have heard that, but that quote has been around since Jim Elliot's book, but, and we hear it, but I don't know if we own it. 
if we really believe that's the, uh, that that's true. And so Jesus teaches his disciples here that there will be not only a blessing for them now, but a future glory also. And the blessing we receive in the Mark Gospel, it says a hundredfold, that you will receive a hundredfold what you lose, um, which is basically saying it's unlimited. Um, and doesn't show that in the Matthew Gospel, but the parallel passage in Mark, it does. So, and this is just not a principle for the disciples, folks. It's for all Christ followers. It's for all who say, you know what, enough of me doing it my way. I'm surrendering it now, once and for all, to Jesus Christ. I've fought him. I've argued with him. I've tried to do it my way. I've played the game. I've done everything that, you know, makes it look like I'm sort of in the fold. But I've never truly let it go and surrendered it to Christ. John Calvin wrote, He who voluntarily loses all this for Christ's sake will have greater joys in this life than if he kept them. Greater joys in this life than if he kept them. Now, if there's one thing that has been marked in our society, it's been a sense of hopelessness, a sense of anger, a sense of despair, a sense of angst. And do you think if one person came up with a pill that said, if you take this pill, you have instant hope, instant joy, how many would pay anything for that pill? And Jesus gives it for free. Jesus gives it for free, but we don't trust it. People just don't trust it. Um, greater joys in this life. But he also wants to, uh, the disciples to understand that this reward is not some sort of quid pro quo. You know, if you do this, God will do this. If you do this, God will do this. No, God's reward is always a reward of grace. It has nothing to do with what we deserve. It has everything to do with his love. And when people begin to fully understand what that means, his love, it changes everything. The blessings that God gives will always outweigh significantly, overwhelmingly, the things that we give up. John Trapp, if you ever get a chance to, you know, you just like to read, you know, writers from the 1600s. John Trapp was a Puritan theologian. He was one of Ruth um, Bell Graham's favorite writers. And she quoted him probably as much as she quoted C.S. Lewis. Um, but he wrote, uh, sort of a jab at the disciples, he says, what Peter says, Lord, we have left everything for you. And Trapp says, they've given up all, a great all it was. Sure, a few broken boats, some nets, and some household stuff. He goes, I don't want to minimize the disciples' sacrifice. They left home and family for the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of them gave their lives for him. But I do think that Trapp's point is well taken if you compare our sacrifices in comparison to Christ's sacrifices for us. And then he goes, on the last day, when we come face to face with Christ, which one of us are going to say, Lord, 
Let me show you the sacrifice as big as the sacrifice you made for me. Let me show you all my sacrifice. Let me show you how I did this just for you. I mean, how many of us is going to go up to Jesus and say, you know, my sacrifice was as big as yours? I don't think too many of us. Um, David Livingston was asked once about his sacrifices. And for those of you who don't know David Livingston, Livingstone, um, British missionary and doctor who went to Africa as a missionary. And the purpose of going to Africa, he wanted to find, you know, where the Nile started. Because they didn't know. And if he figured that if he could figure out where the Nile started, he would be considered one of the greatest adventurers ever. And if he could be figured to be the greatest adventurer ever, he could then have a voice loud enough to end slavery. His whole purpose of his missionary journey to find the Nile was so that he could end slavery. He would have a voice against slavery. A powerful story of this man. And so if you ever get a chance to read his story, it's good. And he died from malaria and um, internal bleeding. And he suffered tremendous things. He was attacked by a lion and he broke his arm. He had to set his own arm. Um, and it worked, but he could never raise it up higher than this. I mean, all kinds of things. And then they asked him, what about the sacrifices you made? And he never could understand that concept. Because the rewards of following Christ were so great that the sacrifices that he made were so minimal. And I think sometimes if we look back on our own lives and see all the things that we've done, or things that at one time we may have thought were a sacrifice, that we look where God has brought us to this day, we can say, wow, those aren't sacrifices at all. You know, I may have thought they were a sacrifice, but God saw them as a complete blessing. So the disciples had really given up nothing to God for God in comparison to what God had given up for them. Which leads to the final word of warning that he gives in verse 30. That many who are first will be last and the last first. Now does somebody have their Bible open? Would you look up chapter 20 in Matthew? Uh, and I think it's verse 16. Because he's ending, verse, he's ending chapter 19 with this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. What does chapter, what does 2016 say? The same thing. But he gives a whole parable of people, but the exact same verse. And you will see this a lot. Those who think they will be first will actually will be last. Those who are last will actually be first. He says by way of warning, many, of, many who are perceived to be highly blessed in this life by the world or even by other Christians, many who are perceived to be highly blessed in this life may actually be outranked in the kingdom to come. Because he's saying, I don't judge people the way people judge people. 
I judge the heart. I don't judge outward appearances. I don't judge what, you know, people may see. God's grace rewards us for who we are in Christ. And it's assigned to each person according to the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man or the perceptions of men. The person who seeks self-interest never finds fulfillment in this life. The reach for self-fulfillment always exceeds our grasp. It is, the, it, is the, it is only the person who disowns self-interest and says, okay, God, what do you want for me? Um, that receives the blessings. It's a powerful message that Jesus has for us to truly understand what it means to forsake all and follow Jesus. And it's time that we let go of our reward system, saying, if I do this, God, I should get this. Or if I'm going to really be successful, I should get that new car. Or if I'm going to get this, I need to get that, you know, jump in my pay raise. Or if I get this, you know, I should just get whatever I want whenever I want it. And, you know, when I went to Oral Roberts University, that was the theology of the day. The name acclaimed theology. If I saw a car that I wanted, they said, just name it and claim it. Okay. Mercedes. I name it, I claim it. Never got it. Minivan, got it. <laughs> um, because that's not how God works. And when we understand that the blessings that God promises are far greater than a few material things that will be gone, but the rewards of Christ today, as well as in heaven, last for eternity. And we have the opportunity to experience that joy now and for eternity. The question is, do we believe it? When we see his word, do we believe it or do we still struggle with it and say, well, I believe this part, but I'm not sure if I want to hold on to that part. And there's people that we will come into contact on a daily basis that will say, yeah, I sort of believe it, but I'm not really ready to let it all go and give it all to Christ. And nobody can judge the heart but Christ. And so it's him that is judging each and every one of our hearts. Christ is calling us today to believe this truth and by the grace of the Spirit to have our whole lives transformed because of it. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to just come together to worship you to experience the fullness of who you are, to understand the fullness of your word, and that even when we don't understand it, or we see something that seems so counterintuitive, maybe even counterintelligent, that we have the ability to just trust you, to let it go, to surrender, 
and just say, God, I may not understand all this, but I understand that there is no greater love than the love that you have for me. And I just want to surrender my life to that love, to that grace, and just follow you completely. Minister to each and every person here, Father, that we can go forth and minister one to another. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask these things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said,